The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So one of the bases in which the government can withhold material is, and it's a legitimate basis, is that the material relates to intelligence sources and methods. And the government has redacted a whole lot of material on that basis from the stuff that it has produced to me. And normally I would just kind of roll my eyes and say, you know, I'm sure they're being overprotective, but whatevs. But this instance of it made me uh, really perk my eyebrows up because the intelligence source in question, so-called, appears to be me. I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 9th, 2022. In the summer of 2020, Lawfare's editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes, found out that he had been the subject of intelligence reports compiled by the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. It was a bizarre but troubling revelation, and it raised a lot of questions, not only about the propriety of those reports, but also about the practice in general. Who else was INA compiling intelligence reports about, and on what basis? So Ben filed a FOIA request, and subsequently a lawsuit, in hopes of getting some answers. He's written about this matter for Lawfare a number of times, including in an update we published yesterday. I sat down with Ben to talk through it all. We discussed the background of the case, why so-called open-source intelligence reports can be so dangerous, and what we've learned about DHS over the course of the litigation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 9th, 2022. Why did DHS compile an intelligence report about Lawfare's editor-in-chief? So let's start with how this all began. Take us back to 2020. You got a an urgent text from Shane Harris at the Washington Post asking you to call him urgently. Yes, and it was it was not about rational security. Uh, Shane <laughs> informed me that there was a DHS intelligence and analysis unit called internally INA. Uh, open source intelligence report about me, or there were two of them actually, and that they involved this tear I had been on both on Lawfare and on Twitter of disclosing unclassified DHS memos and legal guidance about uh, protests in Portland, some of them quite violent, following the George Floyd uh, murder. And 
somebody had leaked to Shane uh, these two intelligence reports filed about me, along with one filed about Mike Baker of the New York Times, who was also reporting on uh, DHS policy. And in response to that, over the next few days, uh, the head of INA was removed from his office, Brian Murphy. And to this day, I have still never gotten any kind of formal explanation from the government as to how I came to be seen as an intelligence subject. Yeah. So let's talk about the context there, which you mentioned a little bit. The reports that you initially published on Lawfare, wrote about on Lawfare and on Twitter were about the Portland protests, as you said. And just remind everyone what was going on then, because I think an interesting question here is whether we should believe that the, what I think is fair to say, excesses and admitted excesses, given that someone was fired after doing this, whether they were done sort of in the midst of a sense of extreme tension and emergency, or whether this was really just a matter of course at DHS and within INA, and and that the the coming to light of it was somewhat incidental. Well, it appears, and that, and one of the reasons that I was interested in pursuing the litigation that we're about to discuss is that I was interested in the answer to that question, that it seemed to me that it was a much lesser problem, although not a non-problem, if INA had filed three intelligence reports on journalists in the context of a high-stress situation in Portland uh, that you know, was quite chaotic than if they were doing it as a matter of course. And we, of course, did not know the answer to that question at the time. Uh, one of the other things that interested me at the time was who, you know, if they were filing this kind of material on me involving, again, I want to stress, we were not, I was not reporting anything that was classified. These are not, this is not highly sensitive material. These were basically policy and, you know, guidance documents uh, about how to deal with, you know, protesters and how to deal with leaks. But those, just to be clear, those documents were leaked to you, even though they were not classified, correct? Yes. Um, they were, uh, the, the initial document was, uh, was leaked and then the subsequent material was people talking about leaks and complaining about leaks, and those were in turn leaked as well. But they're all stamped unclassified. You know, this is not a, you know, Lawfare actually, and I personally do not publish classified information. So we're a little bit differently situated from the rest of the press in, in this regard. And so I was you know, actually quite befuddled by it. You know, what is this the, the tip of a much larger iceberg? Is it the beginning of something? Remember, this was in the period in which Trump was very actively talking about using the power of the state to go after his 
his enemies. Uh, and so I, I was not sure that, you know, and, and one of the, one of the interesting things about it was that this was a so-called intelligence report that was composed of utterly mundane public information, which was the fact that I had tweeted these documents. And of course, my Twitter feed is available to anybody, who, at least until Elon Musk gets rid of it, uh, for my not paying $8 a month, is available to anybody who clicks follow. And so this was basically a you know, intelligence report that was disseminated that amounted to, hey, this guy Ben Wittes tweeted something. And of course, tweeting something is core First Amendment protected activity. And, you know, insofar as what I do is journalism, that is core First Amendment protected activity as well. There was no suggestion that I had, you know, done anything wrong or illegal. Uh, and so, you know, the the background is a kind of, and, and DHS almost immediately when the Washington Post revealed that this activity was going on, you know, announced that they weren't going to be doing this, that it was, you know, they basically confessed error and removed Brian Murphy as, as head of INA. And so there was a almost immediate recognition that something had gone wrong, but there was no answer to the question of, you know, what had gone wrong or how this had happened or how expansive the activity was. Were we looking at the entirety of the activity? Were we the only journalists? But, you know, there were sure a lot of protesters uh, who were being reported on for First Amendment protected activities. Or uh, was this the thin edge of a much wider wedge? And that was what, what I was trying to find out. So let's pause for a second on the fact that this was wrong, even by DHS's admission, because I think, you know, to many of us, it's it's pretty self-evident, but it, it may not be to everyone, because essentially how you described the reports on you is, you know, maybe someone who was an analyst for INA did a bunch of searches on Google for Benjamin Wittes and copied and pasted public information and compiled it into a document. So what is the harm of doing that sort of just compilation of public materials? So the harm to me of the particular collection and retention and reporting was nothing. I mean, I, I do not want to hold myself out as any kind of victim here nothing bad happened to me. Uh, the harm to the public of government willy-nilly searching uh, and collecting on people on the basis of holy First Amendment protected activity is considerable. And, you know, it's, it's a big kind of post-Watergate no-no. DHS is not, you know, which has some domestic intelligence collection authorities, it's not allowed to collect intelligence just for the sake of collecting intelligence. It has to be pursuant to some known authorized mission. And there are a set of authorized missions that they're allowed to collect to, all of them related to Homeland Security. They're also, generally speaking, not allowed to 
you know, collect on just anybody they want, you know, because they're curious, right? And once you allow that, you allow the kind of keeping of dossiers on people, which was kind of exactly what the intelligence community was trying to move away from in the wake of Watergate. And so it's it's kind of one of the big no-nos is, you know, collecting purely on the basis of First Amendment activities or without, you know, collecting pursuant to some defined authorized mission. Yeah. And let's talk about that for a second as well, because it may be surprising to some people that DHS even has an intelligence function. I think oftentimes when people think about intelligence, it's, you know, the CIA for foreign intelligence, it's maybe the FBI for um, similar types of activities domestically. But how does DHS fit into this and how are its authorities and its mandate different than other intelligence gathering agencies? So DHS has some very specific authorities that can reasonably be informed by intelligence collected domestically. For example, it has a whole cybersecurity group, right? For It has the domestic portfolio in cybersecurity. It has jurisdiction over the borders. It has, and, and ports of entry. Uh, it has all kinds of you know, specific authorities that are, uh, it has the Coast Guard, right? Uh, all of these are entities that can be consumers of intelligence, including intelligence generated domestically. So I do not have a problem with the idea that DHS would have some collection and analytic function. And I don't even have a problem with the idea that in the context of the uh, violence in Portland, a lot of which was focused on the U.S. courthouse there, uh, as well as federal buildings, that, you know, DHS would have a role there. That seems to me to be a far cry from filing intelligence reports on somebody for tweeting leaked documents about leaks or about, you know, questioning whether protecting Confederate monuments constitutes a reasonable homeland security mission, which was the original lawfare post. And so I, I, I guess I don't have a problem with the DHS intelligence function. I do think you have to have a responsible group of people operating it. And, you know, my first thought when I was told, or one of my first thoughts when I was told that I was the subject of two, what are called open source intelligence reports. And since we're in Washington, everything has to have an acronym. They're OSIRS, which always sounds to me like an Egyptian god. One of the my first thoughts was, you know, what kind of clown show are they running over there? Yeah. So as you say, this raised a lot of questions among them, how you became the subject, but and among them, even more importantly, to you was was how pervasive this was and how wide it went. Um, so as you said, you decided to file a freedom of information request. I believe that was in um, the summer of uh, 2020. 
tell us what happened after that and what was uh, what were the requests in particular that you made in the initial FOIA request? Yeah, so the requests sought information about the specific case, you know, basically the documentary history of how I ended up in these intelligence reports. It also sought information about the follow-up, what was done in response and what were the extant policies concerning filing such reports on people who had uh, essentially, you know, were just engaged in First Amendment protected activity. And then finally, it asked as well for material about any investigation or any follow-up that was conducted in light of what had happened. Uh, And as generally happens with FOIA requests, uh, we got nothing in response, which is generally what you expect if you're not willing to either wait five or six years or litigate. And so after an appropriate period of time, uh, I filed a lawsuit represented by uh, your old law firm, Jenner and Block, and we have been in litigation with DHS ever since. Um, and they have been subject to a production schedule of the couple thousand pages that they acknowledge to be responsive that they have, and they are slowly uh, producing those. And when the litigation first started, did they raise any objections to the request in terms of scope or relevance or or anything else to to try to push back on what the requests had been? I don't believe so. They, I I mean, they acknowledged that there were responsive materials. They uh, conducted a search and identified what they believed to be the universe of the responsive materials. And of course, each material then has to go through a lot of review. And in the case of these materials, they have gone through a lot of redaction and are slowly, you know, a couple hundred pages here, uh, 50 pages here, 25 pages here. Uh, Once a month, they produce a pile of material. And as it turns out in this saga, the redactions that you mention end up being quite interesting. So tell us about how these redactions look and what the basis of them is, according to the government. Well, yeah, so this is this gets into the the technical world of FOIA, but I promise there's a there's a a goodie bag at the end of the path. So one of the bases in which the government can withhold material is, and it's a legitimate basis, is that the material relates to intelligence sources and methods. And the government has redacted a whole lot of material on that basis from the stuff that it has produced to me. And normally I would just kind of roll my eyes and say, you know, I'm sure they're being overprotective, but whatevs. But this instance of it made me uh, really perk my eyebrows up because the intelligence source in question, so-called, appears to be me. And the method that they're protecting appears to be reading my Twitter feed. So one of the things that they have, and the reason we know this Uh, is that one of the things they have redacted very heavily is 
the intelligence reports about me, which remember, I already have because they were leaked. Uh, I have had copies of them since shortly after the Washington Post got them. I know exactly what they say. And the government has produced versions of them that lack, you know, things like my name and my Twitter feed and the number of followers that I have. So basic information that is completely public and that they've done this on the basis that these are sensitive sources and methods, which as somebody who has literally never acted as a source for uh, the intelligence and analysis unit of the Department of Homeland Security came rather as a surprise to me that I was a source needing to be protected from myself and that the the sensitive method in question is not some like encryption algorithm or something or some means of technical collection. It's going on Twitter and typing at Benjamin Wittes and discovering, oh, hey, this guy has a Twitter feed. So, and that was the first sense that, hey, something's kind of off here. And we raised that with the court. But the second issue, which... I'm embarrassed to say I did not fully understand until this past week was that there was actually a document that was a a full investigation of this case that was sufficiently redacted that I didn't understand the importance of it and I didn't understand how much information there was in it. And in retrospect, if I had read it very carefully between the redactions, I would have learned a lot, but I did not, I, I did not read carefully between the redactions the way I should and so should have. And so, uh, they produced this document a number of months ago, um, and images of it and why it may have been so confusing to me are available in connection with the article that I posted yesterday. But, uh, you know, until the unredacted version of it came before me, I confess that I actually missed its importance. And just to reiterate on on both of these points, the redactions are not to indicate that DHS is claiming that this information is classified, correct? It's just claiming some other authority for being able to restrict that information from disclosure under FOIA? Correct. The information is not classified. There is nothing classified about my name, about my Twitter feed, about any of the material in this, in these documents. They are stamped unclassified for official use only. The government's contention is that not all intelligence sources and methods are classified and they have a positive obligation to protect intelligence sources and methods under FOIA, whether they are classified or not. Right. I think that's an important distinction to make because, of course, it's not always the case that documents that have become public are not also classified. But Well, then let me blow some intelligence sources and methods for us right here, because it turns out, people, that sometimes following a Twitter account can be a government intelligence method. And I just want you to know that, that 
you know, there are circumstances in which government agents will read Twitter. <laughs> I suppose that is an important clarification, but good to know also, guys, that uh, they're not going to claim that it's classified, at least yet. Yeah, what they're going to do after the uh, after they have to pay $8 a month to read Twitter, we're not sure. But for right now, it's an intelligence method. <laughs> okay. So let's go back to the the second issue that you mentioned, which is the internal report that came to you in a quite redacted form. Um, and I believe that's the same report that um, Senator Wyden then published on his website. So what was that report and what did it say? All right. So the report is, you know, uh, several dozen pages long. It's, it's uh, you know, 60, 70 pages. But it is a report uh, prepared for the Office of General Counsel of DHS on the acquisition of this information and the preparation of these three uh, OSIRs. And it is pretty exhaustive and detailed. I give a fairly detailed summary of it, at least as pertains to me in, in the Lawfare article. First of all, it says very candidly the collection was improper and that the retention of the information was was improper. And it goes into in some detail how it came to happen, both with respect to the uh, individuals who who are not named, who who generated it and the atmosphere in the office uh, that contributed to that. It also includes uh, the fact that, which was redacted in the original version that I received, that somebody in the office on reading this intelligence report requested a set of operational background reports about me, including, and this is the fact that was redacted, uh, all of my associates and uh, I forget the exact language, my associates and, you know, uh, known groups that I was affiliated with. So operational background reports, which are sometimes internally called baseball cards, are, I think of them as, you know, sort of dossiers that are used in counterterrorism. I've never heard of something like that being created uh, on for a journalist doing journalism. And uh, the report, first of all, concludes that it would have been highly improper. And secondly, that somebody noticed that and said, hey, we can't do that. That's, you know, that's a journalist you're dealing with, and he's not accused of anything. And so the, the, the basic findings of the report, at least as pertains to me, are very consistent with my own initial reaction to it, which is uh, there are no circumstances in which it is appropriate for the intelligence community to be doing that. And that actually is a, a reassuring thing that, that the intelligence community itself came to that conclusion internally very quickly and did a did a appropriately thorough report i believe the you know this was completed you know more than a year and a half ago so it's it's uh, you know been the position of of the department 
for a good long time that this simply should not have happened. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, 
doxing and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. And what exactly is the distinction between an OCR and a, and a baseball card? Because it does sound like the decision or the, rather the request to create a baseball card for you served as a served sort of a gatekeeper function. It was, it was noticed at that time that it would be improper to do something, but how is it functionally different from an OCR and, and why would it have served in that manner as an internal check? Yeah. So uh, first of all, query whether it did serve as an internal check. It, it, somebody said, no, we can't, create a base a set of baseball cards on 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 Wittis, but they didn't you know what caused DHS to say hey what the heck's going on here is that the Washington Post published the story it was actually the leak of the of the OSIRs that 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 caused that so i the difference is an oh, look an open source intelligence report imagine that i were to tweet something that actually had Homeland security implications. For example, imagine I were to tweet, there's an election happening today. I'm going to do whatever I can to disrupt it, including violence, right? And I am not tweeting that and I am not saying that, but imagine that I were, right? I, that actually has Homeland security implications. It's related to some actual missions of DHS, um, including, you know, ones that involve protection of federal workforce, that sort of thing. And so this, but it's, you know, it's not something they've acquired from some secret source. It's something that's out there. Um, and so in that situation, you, what you do is you file an intelligent, an open source intelligence report that says, Hey, you know, this guy Wittes is saying this out in public, you know, local police might want to notice that, right? That's an OSIR. The baseball cards are something else. They seem to be using them. They were much more detailed dossiers and they were using them. And, you know, I have not dived deep into the general use of them. I have to say the general use of them seems pretty disturbing to me. Uh, they were basically preparing detailed dossiers based on, you know, arrest history, uh, all kinds of other, you know, information about 
people who were arrested in Portland, you know, protesters. And uh, so these are much more detailed. They're not limited to the things that they were saying there or doing now. It's basically like, you know, what can we find by searching on people? And that's really, you know, you want the government to be doing that in the context of predicated investigations, but it's a really complicated question, you know, when and about whom and under what circumstances you want, you know, kind of operational files available. And I'm like, that makes me super uncomfortable in general outside of a, you know, very specific set of law enforcement contexts. So in your view, um, should there be almost some sort of predicate for creating a baseball card on people? Look, in the context, I I would avoid the term operational background reports or baseball cards. I think that that just sounds like, you know, it sounds like, you know, overseas counterterrorism to me. And so, look, if you're investigating a crime or a suspicion of a crime, you have to gather lots of information on people. When you arrest somebody in a context of a protest, if you are not investigating him or her for something else, um, you shouldn't be collecting information on the person just to have information on the person. Right? I mean, if you're, if, if I arrested so-and-so for, you know, throwing a rock at a cop, fine, prosecute him for throwing a rock at a cop. But what does DHS need a general file about the person sitting around for? That gets into some pretty creepy territory. So I would say, I, I would say, I would not say you should never do it. There are circumstances where you might need to. The enthusiasm that this office and its leadership showed for the idea in the context of these protests unnerves me. And uh, and certainly it has nothing to do with me. I was not arrested for anything and I was not purported to be involved in any illegal activities and I never came anywhere near Portland. And so, you know, there's the there's the question of the underlying activity and then there's the question of you know how it extends to other people of the most marginal involvement in anything right and you mentioned just now and and earlier the explanation that the report gave for why there may have been this sort of enthusiasm at the time which again you know query whether it was specific to the context, whether there was a perception within DHS that this was, you know, a time of true emergency intention or whether this was a a standard practice. But the report says in it that it attributes the decision to to start doing those OCRs to sort of poor training and um, a toxic work environment and people being overworked because of the COVID pandemic and and similar such things, rather than a real sort of political motivation to tamp down on dissent. This is, of course, during the Trump administration, when, as you say, there were a lot of concerns that the administration was 
looking to target political enemies. Did you find that finding in the report to be persuasive? I did. And I found it super reassuring, actually. I thought it was weird as hell that DHS would be interested in me. And one possible explanation for that was that I was, you know, DHS was at the time being essentially run by Ken Cuccinelli, who was a very, very Trump loyal kind of guy and made all kinds of noises about, you know, the president's agenda and bidding and whatnot. And Trump was not subtle about wanting to go after his his enemies. And so one possibility was that, you know, somebody was trying to please somebody. And I thought that was not highly likely because I honestly am not that important. But uh, it was certainly like it had never happened to me during the Bush administration or during the Obama administration. You know, I've been an adult since the Reagan administration. And I've never, I've published leaked materials before, uh, and I've never ended up the subject of an intelligence report. And it did seem to me to be an important question whether the political atmosphere in which, you know, I was known to be friendly with the FBI folks who ran the Russia investigation may have had something to do with it. And I find it actually very reassuring to read a professional report that basically says, nope, it wasn't that. It was merely that they had really badly trained people that they sent to Portland. They were under a huge amount of pressure. And by the way, uh, the guy who was running the office ran a truly toxic work environment that they all were miserable. And if you actually read the section about how the reports were generated, they actually sound like miserable people under intense pressure. And in one of them reports, you know, crawling into bed at night uh, and waking up the next morning and, you know, the Washington Post had, had run this story. And I, you know, I actually think that's, like that's the best kind of fuck up, you know, which is to say relatively harmless uh, in the sense that I don't think either Mike Baker, I don't want to speak for Mike, but I certainly did not suffer terribly as a result of this error, directed at people who are actually capable of doing something about it. You know, I, I do think the, the bigger concern for me are protesters in Portland who, you know, may have had their civil liberties violated and may not be in a position to draw attention to it. I I am in a position to draw attention to it and for it to be done for non-political reasons. And it's a reminder that, you know, even during the Trump administration, relatively normal fuck-ups do happen too. It's not just the extraordinary stuff. You know, it's it's true that it's, you know, perhaps a more anodyne type of messing up. But is it something that can be easily resolved? I mean, of course, we can hope for better training, we can hope for better leadership. But if these types of activities could have could happen, um, and they're, you know, sufficiently diffuse among analysts within INA, 
is there a way to resolve this sort of conduct that that goes beyond just hoping for better leadership and hoping that the training is more robust? Well, a couple things about that. First of all, INA now has better leadership and the leadership at at INA and actually this is a I think a inspired choice the Biden administration chose Ken Weinstein who's a Republican uh, national security lawyer of excellent reputation and so if you're trying to say hey we want this place to run in a non-political fashion you know it's one of these cross-party appointments that of a very high quality individual. And so I, I actually think this episode combined with the you know, underlying chaos that was reigning at DHS at the time of the George Floyd protests and the Portland activities actually did draw a lot of attention to the fact that this, this is a component that needed help. And I think, you know, President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas deserve some credit for putting, you know, Ken Weinstein in there, who's actually in a position, he's run the National Security Division at Justice. He's actually a, you know, in a position to provide that leadership. Look, I don't want to say this has nothing to do with the political environment of the Trump administration, because it does. And here's the, here's the link to the political environment the pressure that these folks were under was partly a function of the political leadership at the time of DHS, you know, chest thumping that, you know, they should be, you know, doing more cracking down. Um, And so, you know, the political pressure that they were under to, you know, quell things was intense and a lot of bad things happened in, in in response to that. So that kind of politicization, I think, was real and had had effects, including effects like this. But that's a little bit different from, you know, the head of INA cackling, ha ha, I know how to please the president. I'll go after that Wittis character, right? And that appears not to have happened. And I think that's you know, I don't want to say therefore all is well, because therefore all was not well. But I do think therefore, it falls a little bit more into the category of the kind of normal screw ups that I mean, it's not a normal screw up, it's a very weird screw up. But the kind of thing that is shocking, but does not shock the conscience. Let's put it that way. Okay. So I do want to come back to another development that we sort of skipped over that happened in the course of your litigation, um, which fortunately to have a spoiler alert ended up in a good place, but was pretty shocking, honestly, at first, which was um, a status conference that you had in the course of the litigation um, when Judge Moss, who's the judge presiding over your case, asked the government whether these types of reports were still being compiled. And the government attorney said that they would have to to go back to verify. Uh, so just tell us a little bit about what happened there and what the result has been. 
Yeah, so this is actually a very interesting little detail and one that relates in important ways to the release of this report. So, you know, Judge Moss, who is a very careful and conscientious judge, was he was considering whether to defer until the end of the litigation, the question that I had raised earlier, which was, uh, you know, whether it's reasonable to call me a source and reading my Twitter feed a method for purposes of FOIA exemptions. And, you know, he basically said, look, I, I would normally want to deal with this at the end of the litigation, but I might feel differently about it if the, I weren't confident that the underlying activity had stopped. And so he asked the government lawyer to to clarify for him that the DHS was not still keeping track of, you know, filing OCRs on about journalists. And uh, he gave her, she asked for a, a week so that she could consult with the client. And uh, he gave it to her. And a week later, she filed uh, what I thought was a very strange document, which basically said, I need more time the answer to this question has big implications and I can't answer it yet. And so this struck me as, as very peculiar because it implied that there was a question about whether this sort of collection and activity was still happening uh, and that she could not give a simple no he gave her an extra few weeks and she then came back with a very clear statement that it had in fact stopped. Um, and so that would have been the end of it from, or is the end of it from my point of view, except for one thing, which is nine days later, Senator Wyden released this document and Senator Wyden got the full unredacted document because According to a letter sent by Ken Weinstein, the new head of INA, they had reviewed their policies about sources and methods and decided that under their new policy, they could be much more transparent and unredact a whole lot of that material. And so based on that, I think um, they are now going to have to provide me a whole lot of the material that they've already provided in unredacted form. Um, and so I, I think what should be the outcome here, and I'm, I'm cautiously confident of it in light of her statement to the court and in light of Weinstein's statement to Wyden combined with the release of the full unredacted uh, version of the of the report, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get, you know, a, a much fuller account of what happened here, and that it will not be impeded by the government telling me that I'm, you know, that they're protecting their source, i.e., me, and their method, i.e., reading my Twitter feed from disclosure to me. Uh, so, you know, fingers crossed. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but I, I do think we're in a much better position than we were three weeks ago. So I'm 
cognizant, though, that there still is a, a big and important remaining question that inspired you to file this lawsuit in the in the first place, um, which is that, you know, creating these reports, creating OCRs on journalists is extremely dangerous, but journalists do sort of inherent to their position have a platform on which to draw attention to the issue and raise the alarm if they find out about it as you did. But of course, protesters who are participating in protests um, and, and are under First Amendment protected activities and don't cross the line into any sort of criminal conduct, um, if reports are being made about them, it's a very different story. And so it, it occurs to me, you know, was was Judge Mosh's question posed to the government about whether OCRs were being created specific to journalists, or was it broader than that, such that we can feel confident now that OCRs are not being created without more of, I mean, not a criminal predicate, because that's perhaps not required here, but without some much higher standard than what seems to have been the case here and what DHS admitted to have been an inappropriate standard that was um, being utilized under the Trump administration? The question was limited to journalists, and the answer was limited to journalists. I hope this litigation will cause the release of, and it actually already has, uh, it's just that a lot of the material is so redacted that it's hard to parse, um, but I'm hopeful under the new policy, uh, we'll get a lot of that material in much less redacted form, and we'll be able to sort of figure out what they were, or I hope anyway, that we will be able to get to uh, some questions about what sort of open source intelligence reports they were filing on protesters and what the lines and the policies were as a functional matter. Uh, I do think the equities with respect to protesters and journalists are a little bit different. They're not, they're related, but they're not exactly the same because in a place like Portland, you have violent protests and nonviolent protests uh, closely intermingled with one another, right? And so if you're trying to prevent an attack on the courthouse, it may be legitimate to say, hey, as an, you know, there's a protest planned for in front of that courthouse at blank time, which is, of course, a report on a First Amendment protected activity, but it's a First Amendment protected activity in a location where you're expecting violence, where there has been violence and involving some people who were probably involved in that violent activity. That's a little bit different from the issue of reporting on uh, OSIRs involving journalism. That said, I do think INA was pretty reckless here. And the the same pressures that led to irresponsible reporting involving journalists probably led to irresponsible reporting involving protesters too. And I very much want to see if we can shed some light on this using this litigation. Yeah, I think that would be really important. And and as an accompanying matter, you know, the, the FOIA litigation is inherently backward looking. So it seems to me it would also be really valuable, whether through this litigation or through some other means. 
to get more assurances that these types of OCRs are not being created inappropriately for protesters. As you say, there there may be instances where it is more appropriate. A criminal predicate is not required here as a threshold matter, but there still is sort of an, a complicated space um, and a, a troubling space where First Amendment protected activities um, and individuals engaged in them could become subjects of these reports. And that could still be going on. We don't have assurances from the government to the contrary. That's right. And and I think getting those assurances would be very difficult because, in fact, there are a lot of circumstances where, you know, where somebody's engaged in First Amendment protected activity and there are legitimate reasons to report about it. Uh, let me give you another example involving, again, me. In one of my other lives, as listeners may know, I, I spend a lot of time shining lights on the Russian embassy. Uh, this is First Amendment protected activity. It's protest activity. It's not journalism. I'm not doing it in my capacity as a journalist. Um, but I've interacted a lot with the diplomatic security officers and the Secret Service. And, and in the context of doing that, I am sure they memorialize those conversations and that there has been some, I don't know if it's intelligence reporting or whatever, you know, this guy Wittes who shows up with a laser and writes things on the Russian embassy. I don't have a problem with that. Right. Even though it's First Amendment protected activity, because they have some important functions that implicate that you have to be really careful when you're doing that stuff. As a law enforcement or intelligence agency, you have to really think through, are we reporting on this pursuant to a protective function with respect to the embassy or are we just keeping tabs on this guy? And I think you know, the Secret Service in the context of my Russia protests has been, you know, pretty exemplary about their interactions uh, with me, at least with one, one big exception. The INA in the context of Portland protesters were not exemplary. And I do think, you know, forcing them to think through what are the circumstances in which it is appropriate pursuant to one of your actual missions to report on protests? And what are the circumstances in which you're basically just keeping files on people? That's an important thing to do, quite separate from uh, my own personal interests in, in, you know, not having intelligence reports filed on me because I'm the editor of Lawfare. Okay. I think we're going to leave it there. Good luck on the litigation, and we will look forward to future updates. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode 
was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.